Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Ewan Lawson and today in episode 24 I want to talk a little bit about burnout Um, and this is a kind of a concept that's often applied to all sorts of situations where somebody's not getting on very well or they're just feeling tired out but it has some rather specific meanings and I want to tell you a little bit about my experience of burnout as well. So I've been involved in co-editing and writing a book specifically about burnout for doctors and for GPs that came out um, last year, I think it was. Um, most of the work on that was done by my um, by another GP called Adam. Um, I'm hoping Adam will come on and chat about burnout in at some point in the near future as well. But today I want to tell you a little bit about my experience, give you some kind of background about how it gets measured, give you something to think about, and also some thoughts on how you might go about managing if you think you might be suffering from burnout yourself. So as ever, show notes available at blokeology.io forward slash 024. For this episode, let's crack on. So it wouldn't be very fair of me to talk about burnout without perhaps giving a little bit um, of my own experience of burnout uh, and how it affected me. There are, I think there is an awful lot of evidence around that shows that doctors and the vast majority of them, the kind of the research is variable, but, you know, certainly over 50 percent, some studies up to 70 percent will suffer from burnout to some degree or another. And my story of burnout really perhaps goes back to uh, 2002. And um, it's a little while ago now, obviously, I am currently just 46 2002, the end of 2001, 2002, I was working as a junior doctor um, down in the southeast of England in Surrey. And just to give you a little bit of context, and I did this talk for some year five students earlier in the week. To give you a little bit of context, obviously 2001, the most memorable event from 2001 is fairly easy to recollect, being September the 11th. But in November 2001 was actually the time that the very first Harry Potter film came out. So we're going back a little while now. Um, It was also in November 2001 that I looked back and it turned out that the Labour Party uh, were 31 points ahead of the Conservatives at that point, which seems almost an unimaginable difference uh, compared to the current political situation. Uh, Foot and mouth was raging across the countryside, but it was coming towards the end. And it was actually in January 2002 that the foot and mouth crisis was declared over. Now, I graduated as a doctor in 1997, and uh, back then when you graduated, you spent one year um, as a pre-registration house officer, as a junior doctor, um, a junior, junior doctor, um, or most um, doctors in hospitals up to the level of consultants are, of course, generally referred to as juniors. Um, And I'd been away in the army. I'd spent six months training, and then I spent a couple of years as a medical officer, and I'd been in places like Germany um, and Bosnia and... um, at that point. So I came back to the UK in February 2001 and I started working as a senior house officer. And I think it would be fair to say I wasn't really happy in that job at that time, um, which is kind of a massive understatement. And I wasn't really drinking heavily and I wasn't drinking regularly, but there was a really big binge drinking culture at that time. And it certainly was the case that I would go out and if I went out and had a drink, I'd really hang one on. Um, And that had its own problems. And certainly there was no difficulties with um, 
kind of day-to-day drinking alcohol dependence in that regard but if you look at any medical evidence you can very quickly see that the kind of there's an awful lot of harms associated with binge drinking and my understanding is that perhaps there's still certainly a binge drinking culture in britain perhaps compared to other countries but it does seem that younger generations have actually left binge drinking behind a little bit but back in the 90s as early 2000s um it was really a bit of a problem and the army in particular fostered a binge drinking culture of which you can barely um imagine and i was on a big binge in edinburgh um for new year with a friend an army friend and i remember getting a phone call from early in the morning and i think i was in the middle of a kind of a bit of a bender with that army mate and i remember getting a phone call from a close friend john at that time and the phone call was basically like another chap that i was in the army with had been found dead uh, marcus had been found dead in his room uh, in the small hours of the morning on january the 1st and he was working as an anesthetics trainee and he'd overdosed on a cocktail of drugs and I don't know if it's ever been really satisfactorily explained what happened, whether he was experimenting, whether it was a suicidal thing. I've never seen the coroner's report and I'm not sure what the verdict was. But I do remember going to the funeral and being a little bit surprised. He was a really lovely guy, very friendly, but there didn't seem to be an enormous social circle around. And I kind of at that time was pretty unhappy, struggling in my social circle was dwindling. And having a close, um, having a close colleague, someone that you thought of, who seemed very sorted and very secure and very happy, going through something like that. And as I said, I, I don't want to call it suicide because, out of, particularly out of respect for his family, because I don't know if that's what it was in the end. Um, but it was a real eye opener to me, and it made me realise how much how unhappy I was at that time in that job. And I certainly had a lot of the traits of burnout. I was, and we'll, I'll talk about a little bit more about them in a minute. And my coping mechanisms were really bad. And now my normal coping mechanism, as I've described on the podcast in the past, is that I like to go out and exercise. But in particular, I like to be outside and I like to be in the hills. And so that's a really important coping mechanism for me. And actually, it was a slightly weird, perfect storm in some ways to really kind of push me in the wrong direction because being a junior doctor is hard and you have relatively few hours to go out and do things. The, the rotors in those days weren't insanely difficult. I mean, I, I guess you could have sessions where if you did a week of nights, you might work 100 hours in a week. But even then, you weren't, you know, you still got sleep in regular batches in between. And you could certainly end up working on call on weekends and then that was disruptive to your social life. But the biggest thing for me was actually the foot and mouth crisis because I could no longer go out and exercise in the countryside. So I wasn't taking myself away for weekends to go climbing in the hills or to go walking up mountains. And I lost a lot of that. And of course, I was in the southeast of England, whereas, you know, there's a relatively limited scope for that as well. Very different to um, where I'd done my university degree and where I'd spent my first year as a junior doctor um, up in the hills towards Aberdeen and Invernessia. So I was struggling and I was really unhappy. And actually, the binge drinking also led me into difficulties and I ended up getting um uh, into diffi- uh, you know significant problems with that on a particularly bad binge drinking um, episode and that was a real kind of uh, I mean there's no question then that looking back I was suffering from burnout to some degree or another 
Now, I think I was lucky insofar as I'm absolutely certain I didn't have a mental health diagnosis. I, I, I might have scored fairly highly on an alcohol use disorders identification questionnaire, an audit questionnaire, but that was mostly because of the binge drinking. Um, I don't think I'd have scored particularly highly on um, any of the other questionnaires that look at things like depression or anxiety or those other things. I really wasn't into that, diff- that kind of area. I was just more than anything unhappy. Um, and a few things happened after that. I kind of, a, a lot of these things came together. I realized what was going on. I kind of, I cut back on the binge drinking and particularly that side of things. And I made a decision that I was going to complete my training as a GP. And I started exercising more regularly, got myself posted to finish off my GP training back up to the north of England, got out in the hills more, got some more exercise and genuinely um, was, I was lucky that I turned a corner. But not everybody who goes through burnout or gets into particularly difficulty, particular difficulties um, is that fortunate. So I, I should tell you a little bit about burnout and what the, the official kind of medical definition of this, if you like, or it's not necessarily just medical, but sociological, the ology definition is that um, it was a coin at first 1974. There's a psychologist called Herbert Freudenberger who came up with it. And basically, he described it as job dissatisfaction precipitated by work-related stress. I mean, there is something called the Maslach burnout inventory where you can measure it, and that's used in all the research. And that looks at three basic dimensions. So these are the three things you need to be thinking about if you think burnout is a possibility. And now, when I look back, I can see that I had a lot of these in that period related to my work. So the first one is emotional exhaustion emotional exhaustion. That's feelings of being emotionally overextended and exhausted by one's work. And I, I had that at the time as a senior, as a senior house officer, as a, a, um, as a doctor in the hospital. I just found it really hard to keep on seeing patients. I just wasn't, um, I, you know, I, I kind of wasn't immersed in it enough. I wasn't, not immersed is not quite the right word. I just wasn't engaged with it enough. And I found it really difficult. The second domain after emotional exhaustion is depersonalization. And that's often feelings and a kind of an impersonal response to those who you come into contact with. And so you just get, and what that means is it's harder to see the patient, the person in front of you as a person and as a, rather than just a kind of the disease in whatever it is, the pneumonia in bed one and the heart attack in bed two. And that's a real problem with medicine. And you'll see this an awful lot in doctors, in across all walks of life and probably and other healthcare professionals as well, that actually there's this kind of disconnect between who they are and that individual and the disease. And certainly I experienced that as well. And then the last one was personal accomplishment. So this is the third domain in the burnout inventory is personal accomplishment. And that's often feelings of incompetence in one's work and just not feeling that you're up to the task. And there, it seems to be that, you know, burnout is then this kind of emotional, mental, physical exhaustion. And in particular, it's caused by long-term involvement in emotionally demanding situations. So even people that have got the best coping mechanisms in the world can run into difficulties with this um, at the best of times. And there's a whole range of symptoms you can experience. You might just feel tearful, you know, they can feeling hopeless. You can feel very, and it can lead to very, you feeling very low and depressed. And that can, of course, then cross over into, um, you know, kind of a more formal diagnosis and the serious consequences of depression as well. Um, 
I certainly experienced all those. I can remember being tearful on the, you know, on the wards at times, just feeling overwhelmed by the work, feeling very angry. I kind of, I guess I got, I displaced a lot of my emotions at that time into anger at the system. And if you worked in the NHS at all, you'll know that there's no shortage of um, crappy systems to get angry with. I mean, some of the stuff that they, they you end up doing or running around in circles with um, is just ludicrous. It's a big old system. And it can be very frustrating. So I certainly was suffering from burnout, but I think as we'll come on to, and in terms of what we do about it, my co- coping mechanisms were a bit awry as well. And the binge drinking of the alcohol, although it might only have been once a week or I mean, you know, one, twice a week at most, sometimes not even for two or three, four weeks, was having a you know, detrimental effect on my ability to cope day to day as well. Uh, and so that was a massive factor. Um, as, you know, and burnout is pretty much everywhere. It's amazing how common this is. You know, as I said, rates up to 70%. And, you know, surveys over the last couple of decades have shown that it is often around, on average, about a third of doctors are suffering from burnout to some degree or another, wherever you are in the world and wherever, whatever speciality you're in. It is almost like a completely um, universal experience. So I wasn't unusual on that, but doctors are very crap at talking about it. Um, I, don't, I don't want to just talk about dots. I think this is the kind of thing that you can experience anywhere. You know, those kind of feelings of emotional exhaustion, this depersonalization, the feelings that you're not doing good enough or that you're incompetent, that can happen in any walk of life or any profession you're in. And you can certainly um, suffer that kind of what we, what we would then call burnout um, and could be termed as that. Um, and um, the question is then really recognizing it and then deciding what you're going to do about it. And that perhaps leads us on a little bit to talking about resilience. The thing about resilience is that um, to a certain extent, it's going to be, there are a lot of things you can do to change it, but some of it is fixed according to your personality type. And the personality traits which make you more susceptible to burnout are things like if you're a bit of a perfectionist, so you never feel that anything is ever good enough. If you tend to be a little bit more pessimistic, you feel the need to be in control and you've got a high achieving, very competitive personality. Now, of course, uh, we actually select the people that have these kind of qualities, maybe not the pessimism when it comes to medicine, but there are lots of other people in lots of other walks of life who've also got those personality traits. And they are the ones, you know, they're kind of, you can imagine the high pressured executive trying to do everything, trying to be in control all the time, pushing hard, being really competitive, whether it's an entrepreneur or they're self-employed or someone in a kind of um, a completely different non-healthcare walk of life, those personality traits are a problem. Now, something that you can do about it are that, you know, the, the, some of the causes of burnout and the factors that affect resilience are to do with lifestyle. So some of the most important things you can do are make sure you're getting good quality sleep and that you are allowing time for socializing and relaxing. And if you don't have, and you need an adequate number of close and supportive relationships. And those things are really important. Some of the stuff around burnout that makes it happen is to do with the system. It isn't all about the individual. And that's a really important point as well, before we get into resilience, is that actually sometimes you have to accept the fact that you can't always, you know, that's why some people get a bit cross and a bit pissed off about the fact that we're always saying we must, you know, you do mindfulness and you'll become more resilient. That actually it's pushing all the responsibility onto the individual to toughen themselves up a little bit rather than actually 
fixing the system. And sometimes the systems are rubbish. If you've got no control over your work, if you get no recognition, the job, you know, the demands are unrealistic and completely um, uh, the expectations are ridiculously demanding, then that's going to give you massive problems. Sometimes just monotonous or unchallenging work can be really, can cause an enormous amount of stress. So somebody doing a relatively mundane job, you know, whether it's working in a kind of perhaps somewhere in an automated system where there's or a factory where it's really monotonous and unchallenging, actually that can also result in being more likely to suffer from burnout. But also chaotic, high-pressure environments can cause problems. Um, and there can be wider political pressures as well. All those things shouldn't be ignored. As individuals, there's not too much we can do about those to fix ourselves. We can perhaps try to advocate for better systems, advocate for better systems and to improve things generally so we help ourselves and others in the longer run. So one of the things you might ask yourself is what actually is resilience? And I guess, you know, if you talk about materials, that's quite a good analogy to be made there. And it's basically a resilience in a material is a quality that allows it to be stretched, deformed, squashed, and it still comes back to its original shape. It is, if you like, in the football analogy, and I think it was a football manager that initially came up with it, the back, your bounce-back ability. Um, and bounce-back ability is as good a way to think of resilience as any that I've come across. Um, it, and it's got to be your ability to manage your stress and adversity. And that's going to be an essential quality in all sorts of jobs. There's been some interesting studies on this. And um, a, a pair called Southwick and, Southwick and Charney have looked at qualities that make you more resilient. And... The thing about it is if you're not resilient, it causes, you know, if you come under a lot of stress, it causes certain particular things to happen to you and you become less empathetic. You like to become less generous and the evidence shows you like to become less cooperative. You're more xenophobic. Interestingly, you also have an increased likelihood of interpreting ambiguous or neutral expressions as being hostile. And that's really interesting because that means that, you know, you start think th things which are completely said and are completely neutral and there's no malice intended, you then start to take badly. And then there's an increased likelihood that of displacing frustration and aggression onto those around you. Um, and I certainly think I can, you know, I can look at these and think, oh, I think, yeah, I, when I was suffering from burnout, I was less empathetic, less empathetic. And I did go through this situation where I displaced my frustration and aggression onto others around me as well. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, there are some things that you can do to try to be, um, to help your resilience. Um, there, there are lots of things that Southwick and Charney described, you know, being a realistic optimist, being able to, um, having a moral compass and, you know, being strongly based, having a strong ethical basis for your work can make a huge difference. Um, and so that, that can be really useful if you feel that you're, the work you're doing is useful and important and valuable. Some people get benefit from sort of religion and spirituality. And that doesn't always necessarily mean you have to be a kind of, you know, you have to take up a formal religion. That kind of, that, that spirituality can manifest itself in different sort of ways. They were very clear that, you know, you have to regard man as basically a social creature. No man is an island in that regard. That actually the underlying biology of relationships and the specific neurobiological changes that you get in the context of relationships um, play a strong role in ensuring that actually you kind of you mitigate some of the harms with of the neurobiological effects of stress. So there's enormous benefit in that regard. Um, 
if you can, being physically fit can make a difference. And we've talked lots about this on the podcast. Now, you know, the benefits of physical fitness go well beyond um, the just, you know, the ability to run up a hill at a certain pace, at certain speed. Um, people who tend to be lifelong learners tend to have good high levels of resilience. And actually doing activities, a brain training, if you like, though I'm not suggesting you go off and do sort of a brain training app, but doing stuff that doing stuff that kind of pushes you, ensures that you're always kind of um, developing um, is really useful. And there's certainly, you know, there's an enormous amount of plasticity in the brain. And that even if we get older, that's sort of neuroplasticity is still evident to some degree. And that's possibly how things like, you know, I've, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the podcast before, but there's actually evidence that shows if you do like meditation program or certain, certain types of mindfulness, there are actually been neurocognitive changes being shown on functional MRIs and things like that that make a huge difference. I think there are an enormous range of things you can do. And I don't know what your experience of burnout is and how it how it panned out for you. But I think if you there's a possibility you're suffering from burnout at the moment or you're kind of heading that way, then trying to identify areas where you can make changes and try to do something about that is enormously valuable. And I guess the thing I done I have done as I've gone through my life is that I've recognized that I'm a bit prone to burnout. And I can think of another occasion in 2006 when I was working full-time as a salaried GP as well, when I was just seeing too many patients. I was getting burnt out. I was starting to lack empathy. I was starting to displace my frustration. And I recognized what was going on and I made changes to my working life. And nowadays, I don't do as much clinical work. And I, I've, got, I've got lots of other interests. Because for me, working clinically full-time tends to push me towards burnout. I simply can't tolerate my, my, my personality type. It's just the way it is. I don't tolerate working long, long clinical hours. Um, I've been fortunate that I have been able to make those changes, but to be fair, that was, you know, that was in 2006 and it's, it certainly has taken me, you know, many years to move away from that, to develop my career so that I can do other things. But knowing yourself, understanding what your kind of reactions um, are and what works for you to kind of make you more resilient, that's incredibly important. I, I'm very aware, I've, I've talked a bit more about myself in this um, episode and talked about burnout. Um, I'd be really interested in hearing your stories of burnout, things that you've done to try to manage it in the past. Uh, um, please get in touch through the, through the usual channels. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again.